Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we are super excited to be here to talk about Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from September 15th to October 15th every year. And that I had no idea existed, to be honest. (laughs) Is that awful? No, I think this is the exact reason why we are talking about it today. Right? Hispanic heritage or Hispanic population in my part on the East Coast really largely consisted of gardeners. Is that like when you saw people, right? And then definitely people in the school. I had several friends in elementary school who I've reconnected with on social media recently with playdates and that sort of stuff. But there wasn't much Hispanic heritage or Hispanic celebration going on when I was growing up. Yeah. As far as I can remember. You're different. You were on the West Coast. I was in LA. I mean, it was different, but as I think everyone remembers from the school lunch episode, I went to a small private school. So even my exposure was limited. We had probably more exposure in some ways, but I mean, in my personal life, not really. So let's, so it is Hispanic Heritage Month, September 15th, as you said, marked the start of it, which is the more generous evolution of the original Hispanic Heritage Week. And it was created back before we were born. It was created back in 1968 from legislation sponsored by Representative Edward Roybal of Los Angeles, your hometown, and signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson. And then it became this month with President Reagan in 1988. So it really, like, our growing up years, in theory, we're supposed to have learned about this and celebrated this, but I truly don't remember any of it. Going back to just really quickly defining it, It acknowledges five Latin American countries that declared their independence in 1821 from Spain. So these are Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. So that's what we're celebrating. Yeah. And I think when you think about the start of, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month this year, and we're right in the middle of it right now, it's hard not to really just, you know, wrap your arms around the awkwardness here because... We aren't really about sharing power, you know, we're celebrating difference right now. We're about sort of hoarding that power. And the racial and ethnic composition of those people sitting in cages at the border are trying, you know, desperately to claim asylum or to ask for medical help from us. A lot of those are from those five countries that we just mentioned. So there was a great quote from Ellen McGirt, who writes this amazing newsletter for Fortune. And she said, so maybe now in the age of hate speech and family separation, we might consider spending the next 30 days sitting in the ugly awkward that this commemorative month is sure to reveal, the growing gulf between individual achievement and systemic failure, which I thought was really poignant. Mm-hmm. And how many people right now are even aware? Because until you said that this is what it was, And then my Peloton said it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Again, I was like, oh, wow, it is coming up in little ways, but I don't think it's all over the news. We're not celebrating it in the way I would think it was meant to be celebrated, given perhaps the awkward, as you say. So can you talk to us a little bit about the man behind the month? Yes. So this was really eye-opening to me because even though he was a representative from Los Angeles, I didn't really know much about him. So at the time Hispanic Heritage Week was born, Roybal, who was the Edward Roybal, who we started talking about, was just six years into what would be 30 years of exemplary work representing his district in the U.S. Congress. So he was a congressman for 30 years, still fairly unfamiliar with him. But that wasn't it. He'd actually started out as the director of health education for the L.A. County Tuberculosis and Health Association. 
1949, after he failed the first time, he became the first Latino elected to the Los Angeles City Council. So he filled a seat which represented District 9, which is actually an area that I spent a lot of my childhood in. And for those who know the area, it included Boyle Heights, Bunker Hill, Civic Center, Chinatown, Little Tokyo, and the Central Avenue Corridor. For those who don't know the area, the population breakdown back then was 45% white, 34% Latinx, 15% African-American, and 6% other, which is kind of confusing considering that district, as I just mentioned, included the people living in Chinatown and Little Tokyo. Asian was not enough of a (laughs) category, I guess. (laughs) It was not. It was an other, yes. Roybal had become the recognized leader of Eastside minority groups and was often the spokesman for such groups, as the LA Times noted in 1955 and 1956. So evidently, he knew a little something about helping people with very different life experiences to find common ground. So he held on to his seat that he had won in the city council until he went to Congress in 1962. And in Congress, he earned a powerful spot on the Appropriations Committee, co-founded the House Select Committee on Aging, and established the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. There, he cared about and influenced issues relating to the health and citizenship wellness for people well beyond his district, which included advocating for a wide variety of programs designed to help ignored, vulnerable, and immigrant populations find their full expression in life. And in addition to inclusive education and health programs, he was ahead of the curve on aging, mental health, and fought for the first federal funding for Alzheimer's disease research, which is awesome. And even more interesting, his family, the Royal family, can trace their roots in New Mexico back some eight generations to before the Spanish settlement of Santa Fe. Eight generations. That's a long time to watch America evolve. So like if you call it, you know, 20, 25 years per generation, that's about 200 years. So here we are in the podcast. How are we going to look at Hispanic Heritage Month then? probably a little bit more differently. We're going to be diving into some of the ways that this month might promote some great, yet perhaps uncomfortable conversations around recognizing the humanity in everyone. Because I think that we just mentioned it at the beginning of the show, there's really inhumane conditions going on in our country in a month for a population that we're supposed to be celebrating. So what's an example of this? Uh, Maybe we can talk about the military. Yes, because there is a long history of Hispanic and Latinx service members dating back to the Civil War and beyond. David G. Farragut is perhaps the best-known Hispanic Civil War hero. He served in the Union Navy in the Civil War and later became the first admiral, which is amazing. And Congress actually created that rank and awarded it to him after his 1864 victory in the Battle of Mobile Bay. Now, you just mentioned a couple of terms there that I want to clarify because I did not know And I was curious about it, too. So maybe someone else wants to hear it. But what's the difference? You said he was a Hispanic Civil War hero, but then we talked about Latinx service members. So the difference. So Latinx is a gender neutral term that's used as an alternative to like Latino or Latina. It refers to people whose origin or ancestry is in Latin America. So not Spain, not across the Atlantic Ocean, but Latin America. And geographic location is what separates this term from Hispanic or Spanish. And the use of the X instead of the O or A, like Latinx versus Latino, Latina, that means it's really important because at the end of the word, that makes it inclusive of those in the Latin community who are gender nonconforming, gender queer, gender fluid, that sort of thing. So that's Latinx. The word Hispanic refers to people of Spanish speaking descent. So that includes people from Latin America and Spain, but with the asterisk, it excludes Brazil because their national language is Portuguese. 
And then you talk about Spanish, just to round this out, but it describes someone who comes from Spain. I know Spanish is a language, but it's also a nationality. So just because someone speaks the language Spanish, it doesn't mean that they're from Spain. They are not Spanish, per se. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's super helpful because we use a lot of these words and sometimes we use these words interchangeably. I know I have used the wrong word on more than one occasion. So that was really helpful for me as well. So let's go back to the military. And just to go back to Admiral Farragut for, you know, just a second, he was so influential that the Navy created a whole rank just to give to him. So it seems strange, you know, sometime after that, the government is also deporting today Latinx and Hispanic veterans. And that makes no, we were talking about it, like that doesn't totally make sense. Why would you deport veterans? But carry on, I'm sorry. Right. Basically, there's been a group called the Government Accountability Office, and they've looked into certain things that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, is doing. And they had a big recommendation for them recently in June, which was check to see whether the people you pick up are military veterans before you kick them out of the country. And their recommendation in a slightly more detailed version was that ICE collect and maintain data on veterans. Because from 2013 to 2018, ICE failed to follow its own procedures and policies requiring agents to consider a veteran's military record before beginning the process of removal from the country, according to the report. Typically speaking, when you're making the decision whether or not to deport someone, you consider things like time and service, awards, and deployments. And not only that, but the stated policies of ICE also call for deportation cases that might involve veterans to be referred to higher headquarters for a decision. So not surprisingly, since they didn't look at the status, that didn't happen either. And even sort of more amazingly, officials of the Department of Homeland Security, which is the parent agency of ICE, said they didn't consider the veteran and non-veteran status in removal proceedings and were unaware of policies to the contrary. So like they totally didn't even know their own policies is what they said? Right. They not only like dropped the ball, they just didn't even see the ball. And they pretty much kicked the ball under the bed and were like, what ball? Which, you know, as stated, and when you have stated policies that are supposed to apply across the board to everyone who is a veteran, you know, ICE has established that non-citizen veterans warrant special consideration in the event that they become subject to immigration enforcement and removal. So because no one cared enough to follow procedures at least consistently, some veterans who were removed may not have received the level of review and approval that ICE has determined is appropriate for cases involving veterans. Well, in addition, this next part blew me away. ICE doesn't even know how many veterans have been placed in removal proceedings or removed. Like they just didn't even cross check, it sounds like. Right. At all. There's no list, basically. They have no clue. You know, and apparently after this report came out, you know, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security was like, you're right, like we should do this. But, you know, five, six years too late, it's really tricky to sort of backpedal that, especially if you've initiated removal proceedings. Right. Well, and can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Like we had talked about this in prepping for this episode, but my understanding at the very beginning of this was that you had to be some sort of citizen in order to serve in the military. And we looked into that because to me, that makes sense that, you know, if you're going to ask somebody to put their life, you know, at risk to defend a nation, presumably you would give that privilege and sacrifice to people who are citizens of this country. So when we looked into it, we found something a little bit different. Right. 
And so you can be a citizen to serve in the military, but you can also be a green card holder. So that means that you are in this country legally, but you are not yet a citizen. So there are restrictions on if you are not a citizen serving in the military, you cannot rise above a certain rank. You can't be a commissioned officer, but you are awarded military status. You can be on active military duty. There's nothing barring you from entering the military. Conversely, if you are an undocumented immigrant, typically speaking, if you were to go and say you'd like to enlist, they normally run your name against an immigration database as one of their steps. And that should flag you for being unable to enlist because you do not have legal status in this country. And that would probably trigger ICE coming after you as well. So the likelihood of you doing that is pretty low if you are an undocumented immigrant. Which then blew my mind because I'm like, okay, so presumably you're not having very many people who are undocumented showing up and being like, hey, I'm in the military. So the people that they're talking about, the veterans that they're talking about deporting, for the most part are green card holders or citizens, correct? Right. And I think, you know, when we were prepping for this call, we found one example of a green card holder who was deported, who has was granted clemency at the end of July, which I think helps to illustrate the problem with, I mean, besides the fact that they had policies that no one cared about, but the problem with what ICE is doing, because this individual was a green card holder because he had been in the United States since the age of eight. So basically, if you think about your life past eight, if you're one place, that is your home country. You no longer have ties really into your actual home country in the same way that you do to the country that you've lived in. And he was actually deployed. He was part of the special forces and was deployed to Afghanistan. He entered the army actually, or the military before 9-11. So he was in the military for a long time. He was serving time for a drug charge, a felony drug charge in which he possessed less than 100 grams of cocaine. And he was serving a seven and a half year sentence for that and was deported in last year. And so the governor of Illinois recently granted him clemency. So hopefully, you know, his case will be reopened. But basically, this is the scenario that is so troubling. You have someone who is a military veteran who not only was deployed and served our country in the special forces, but he is a green card holder, having been in this country since the age of eight, was, you know, put in prison for a drug offense, which we already know unfairly targets people who have black and brown skin and is now being deported because ICE couldn't be bothered to figure out if he was a veteran or not or look into his military status. Right. And to me, you know, we had this conversation. Do I think that maybe if you're a green card holder and you haven't become a full citizen and you're going around like we joked around, I mean, not joked, this is awful, but like if you're going around as a green card holder and shooting people, and killing people in this country, should you be deported? Yeah, you know what? I think that that's probably okay to do that. But the two things that really jump out at me is if you've lived in this country since the time you were a child, you no longer have a different home. So that seems crazy to send you, quote, back home when this is your home. And then the other part of it is if you were willing to put your life on the line for this country, yes, you should be given special consideration, especially for something like a drug charge. That doesn't seem like the same thing and an okay scenario to deport somebody. Agreed. And I think when you think about 
the treatment of minorities in the judicial system, especially with regard to a drug charge. And what we were discussing before the call is if this were the exact same scenario, but this man had originally come from Sweden and had a green card and all things being equal, I feel like it would have been very different. So I think we have to look at more than just, you know, the circumstances, let's say. I think there is a lot going on. And that if you're not used to people judging you by your skin color or, you know, seeing you differently that way, it's harder to understand. Because I think what you just said goes to, you know, then it comes back down to the conversation we've had about judges see people who look like them. And there's that whole side that now plays into this scenario. So there's a lot of layers to what we're talking about. And I think it's important to look at the whole and not just look at one little piece of the puzzle to explain the whole. But there's a system here that if we're honest and really look at some of these things are not even, you know, based on how you look. So then let's look at this other part about deportations. And this part, we're talking about mass deportations, which neither you nor I had ever heard happen. So I feel like this is a period of like you took the big eraser and scrubbed it from the history textbooks because I had no freaking idea that when we're talking about deportations now that this has happened in our country less than 100 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear the word mass deportation, I'm pretty sure you're not thinking about the 1930s in the U.S. And apparently when, you know, we're going to discuss this one book that came out on this topic in the 1990s, that was considered groundbreaking because 60s, years later, you know, people did not know about this. And to be perfectly honest, the true impact on families in the United States and Mexico is still being understood. So let's unpack this a little bit. During the 1930s and into the 1940s, up to 2 million Mexicans and Mexican Americans were deported or expelled from cities and towns across the U.S. and shipped to Mexico. According to some estimates, and this is like just what totally blew my mind, more than half of these people were U.S. citizens born in the United States. And we don't even know accurately, really, who was actually deported because the records weren't consistent. So we can't even be sure about this total number. You know, and this is, as we just discussed, this is a largely forgotten chapter in history. And Francisco Balderrama, who is a California State University historian, wrote this book called Decade of Betrayal, Mexican Repatriation in the 1930s. And he co-wrote that book with the late historian Raymond Rodriguez. And, you know, this book really unpacks this time in history that we have largely not discussed. And what he says about it is he says there was a perception in the United States that Mexicans are Mexicans, whether they were American citizens or whether they were Mexican nationals in the American mind, that is in the mind of government officials, in the mind of industry leaders, they're all Mexicans. So ship them home. Now, let's put this in the context of the time, because it was the Great Depression, when up to a quarter of the American people were unemployed and a lot of people believe that Mexicans were taking scarce jobs. Does that sound familiar at all? Except for the Great Depression part. In response, the federal, state, and local officials launched so-called repatriation campaigns. So they held raids in workplaces and in public places. They rounded up Mexicans and Mexican-Americans alike, and they deported them. And the most famous of these was in downtown L.A. in Placita Olvera in 1931. Yeah. I bet you have something to say about that. I do. But first, doesn't that sound awfully familiar? Like, you know, Mississippi, not too long ago. Let's hear about it. But it's not shocking because it just freaking happened in our country now. So anyway, go ahead. I know. And as I was reading about this, I was just like completely blown away because Olvera Street in 
like downtown LA is really the center of, you know, the Mexican community there. So to have this happen there was like just mind blown. But on February 26, 1931, which was a sunny Sunday in LA, you know, hundreds gathered for an afternoon of relaxation in La Placita Park, which was in that whole area that I just talked about. Suddenly, a large group of plainclothes officers armed with guns and batons entered the park. Two officers were posted at each entrance to the park so that no one could leave. Dozens of flatbed trucks circled the park's perimeter. I mean, can you just visualize this? This is nuts. Officers rounded up all the people with brown skin, said Joseph Dunn, a former Democratic state senator from California who also researched this forgotten episode of U.S. history. And not surprisingly, everyone freaked out. So about 400 park patrons were lined up and asked to show proof of legal entry and citizenship of the United States. So, I mean, you're hanging out at the park, right? Who has their citizenship documents with them? It's not like you're walking around with that. The Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans who could not produce proper documentation were detained. Then some were put on trucks and sent to the city's main railroad station. Once there, they were ordered onto previously chartered trains and taken deep into Mexico. So they basically, you went from hanging out in the park on a Sunday to a train back to Mexico, even if you were a U.S. citizen. And the raid, like you were just talking about, came at the height of the Great Depression and on the heels of President Hoover's announcement of a national program of American jobs for real Americans, which also sounds shockingly similar to certain things that are happening right now, which, as historians who studied this time state, these were code words for, quote, getting rid of Mexicans who were not real Americans. And this program, which was implemented by Hoover's Secretary of Labor, William Doak, included passing local laws forbidding government employment of anyone of Mexican descent, even legal permanent residents and U.S. citizens. I mean, what? (laughs) Major companies, including Ford, U.S. Steel and the Southern Pacific Railroad, colluded with the government by telling Mexicans they would be better off with their own people, laying off thousands. And then this part kills me. The Hoover administration began reimbursing localities for enacting his program. I know. You know, and going back to this raid, the L.A. authorities had planned this raid, historians discuss, as a scare tactic to motivate the population to return to their motherland. Which, I mean, you know, if you're potentially going to be picked up wherever you are, yeah, that's pretty scary, I would say. The L.A. City Council sent memos to the county's board of supervisors advising it to stop these illegal deportations because, P.S., you're deporting U.S. citizens. Oh, and also people that you have no proof whether or not they're in the country legally or not. And the board got tired of the memos. And this part, I was just like, oh, God. And wrote back to the city council, this isn't about constitutional validity. It's about the color of their skin. I mean, and they wrote that. And that was pen and paper, which, I mean, it's not Snapchat, people. That is there, like, forever. But isn't that scary that they were like, I was about to swear, they were like, forget the Constitution. We're just getting rid of brown people, is basically what they're saying. How can you override the Constitution as a representative of the government? Like, that does not write. But what are people supposed to do about that, right? Like, at this point, you hear, and this is just because I'm kind of like, what do we do right now if there's constitutional stuff is being shirked? But... That's crazy town. 
I mean, that's, I guess, the most ridiculous part and the saddest part, because you strike enough fear in people by these random raids. That worked a lot of the time. But when it didn't, government officials often used coercion to get rid of Mexican-Americans who were U.S. citizens. In L.A., it was standard practice for county social workers to tell those receiving public assistance that they would lose it and they would be better off in Mexico. So not only for those workers who were at companies who were colluding with the government, but, you know, if you needed help for whatever reason, sorry, you'd probably be better off in Mexico. And then the social workers would get tickets for families to travel to Mexico. They wouldn't just tell them that, they'd buy them the tickets. And that, according to Balderrama's research, one third of LA's Mexican population was expelled between 1929 and 1944 as a result of these practices. One third. That's a lot of people. Like that literally changes the face of a city. Yeah. And I think what is important to focus on is not only the ridiculousness and the unconstitutional nature of the raids and the deportations, but what was the effect on the families of these people who were deported? Because I think that is a question that we are asking right now with regards to our border. Right. Well, let's tell the story of Amelia Castaneda and her family, right? She was born in L.A. in 1926 to immigrant parents. Born in L.A., U.S. citizen. Her mother died when she was growing up, and her father struggled to get work during the Depression. So when Amelia was nine, Los Angeles County paid to put the family on a southbound train to Mexico. They lived with relatives, but often had to sleep outdoors for lack of space. The oldest of the boys, she says, he used to call me repatriada, she remembered in a 1971 interview using the Spanish word for a repatriate. And I don't think I felt that I was a repatriata because I was an American citizen. Castaneda didn't return to the U.S. until she was 17, by which point she had lost much of her English and her father never returned. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you know, you are a U.S. citizen and suddenly you're put on some train, you're in a different country, you're sleeping outdoors because there's no space for you. But you still feel that you are a U.S. citizen. So how do you feel about the country who's just sort of shoved you out? Right. Well, and then let's look at the age compared to the story of the vet that you talked about earlier about the guy who was deployed. She was nine when she was like left the country. She does not feel like a Mexican because she's not. And the guy who left at age eight, his home country and grew up in the United States, she had lost much of her English. She assimilated to the country that she was then raised in from that age onwards. The same way the guy that you were talking about assimilated to America and speaks English. And, you know, it's, I don't know. Is there a parallel there? Am I getting my point across? I sound sort of backwards with it, but. No, I mean, I get it. I think that, you know, it's so easy to just make someone the other, right? But there are so many circumstances where you are born and how you spend formative years are really crucial to your personal identity, I think. And that, you know, is something that is important to never forget, you know, especially if you're looking at everyone's humanity. So, you know, I think we have a great Another example, which is great and terrifying, I think, because in the mid-1930s, when Esteban Torres was three, his father was rounded up and deported to Mexico while working at a mine in Arizona. His mother, like other wives, he said, waited for the husbands to come home from the mine, but he didn't come home. I was three years old. My brother was two years old, and we never saw my father again. His mother suspected that his father had been targeted because of his efforts to organize miners. 
But what I think is amazing about this, and, you know, even though this shows the destruction of family separation, it also shows that this guy, Esteban Torres, is rad because it led him to a lifelong involvement with organized labor. He was eventually elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and served there from 1983 to 1999. And today he serves on the board of La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in Los Angeles, a Mexican-American cultural center. In front of it stands a memorial that the state of California finally dedicated in 2012, apologizing to the hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens who were illegally deported or expelled during the Depression. It was a sorrowful step this country took, Torres said. It was a mistake. And in looking at the border, he said, and for Trump to suggest that we do it again, is ludicrous. And this was before the elections. This statement was made in 2015. However, we know that actually did happen. And in 2019, this all sounds really, really familiar. Mm-hmm. And I think Balderrama, who's done all this research, the difference between the two presidents' approaches to deportations, you know, between Hoover and Trump, is the term repatriation. That word seems to indicate you want to return to your birthplace. You know, Mexican repatriation was viewed as this humanitarian gesture by the administration and the public. But Dunn said, in my investigation, I found that what was called repatriation was actually a cover-up and a case of unconstitutional deportation because the majority of Mexicans who were deported were born and raised in the United States. So maybe that's a subtle difference. Like, they tried to make it sound like they were being nicer, like a better spin, perhaps, than what we currently have. But the end result is the same. You've got families being separated. You've got a hidden history that I had no idea about. You had no idea about. Probably, I would guess some people listening here might be surprised by this. You've got unclear numbers because documents either were not kept or have been destroyed. And no real continuity in what we're doing and how we're doing it. Like, how are we about to repeat this? Yeah, I think. And, you know, that saying that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And, you know, I think we are following that cycle directly. So, you know, what is our takeaway from this? And I think what we both have discussed is there's a lot about our history that we don't know. And I think what we both vehemently believe is there are a lot of different narratives out there, right? Like we're always saying. So this time we're suggesting a couple along with, you know, that our notes and sources that really stand out to us for you to take a look at. So there's that book that we discussed, Decade of Betrayal, and that's amazing. But we've also got a website called HispanicHeritageMonth.gov, which has a section that's devoted to teachers. But really on that link, if you go to their website and click on that sublink that's for teachers, there's a ton of information for everyone to teach and learn with, including focused articles, including a deeper exploration of what Hispanic Heritage Month is, so that we can begin to understand you know, what might be a different narrative than your own or our own. And another great resource is, as we always love, tolerance.org. They have a great article that we will provide the link to, which really it's about the creation of Hispanic identity. And it really breaks down the history of the Hispanic experience in the United States and talks about the diversity of that. And if you want some of these links or these resources, definitely sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com. We've got a thing right there that says subscribe to our email newsletter because we do email out great resources like this, plus other insights every week. Yes. And please, if you like this content, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen to. It definitely makes a difference. And we so appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great week, guys. 
If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. <laughs> 